Well, praise the Lord. I think that uh, in our song selection today, we heard perfectly that balance between music that cuts to the heart, cuts through the air, as it says in Psalm 95, where it breaks the silence and we shout to the Lord, but also songs that cause us to stop like the last one and ask those questions, Lord, is my heart pure before you? Do I have your righteousness? Those are things that we should contemplate when we sing together. Notice it's not just a spectator sport. When we come in here, we're called by God to sing to the Lord. Singing is a blessing from the Lord. And when you're redeemed, uh, you can't keep from singing. Even if you don't sing too well and you're worried about the way people hear you or what it sounds like, that's okay. We need to lift our voices to the Lord. Acts 17 This particular passage begins in verse 16 with Paul going to Athens, and it doesn't end until verse 34, but there's no way I could give you all this information in one setting. So we're going to actually read down through verse 23 this morning, and then next week we'll pick up in verse 24 and see the actual sermon that Paul will speak and preach from Areopagus, when he's standing on that platform and preaches. Now, verse 16. Let's talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ going to Athens, Greece. You ever been to Athens, anybody? I'm not talking about the Holy Land, which is in Georgia, Athens, Georgia. I'm speaking of Athens, Greece. Anybody been there? Well, you're blessed, and it's an amazing thing to get to go to a place like that. And I hope this passage makes you feel somewhat at home, Uh, even though it had its glory day in probably 400 B.C. and down Still, when, when Luke writes this, he is captivated, wants you to be captivated with the place, and of course, he wants you to be provoked with their situation. John Piper once said, missions exist because worship does not. Let that drive your thinking as you think about this text, because it's the lack of worship among the Epicureans and the Stoics and the, and the Athenians that provokes the heart of Paul. In other words, folks, when we see idolatry, yes, we, we know people are lost without Jesus, and we, we so certainly want to see them come to Christ. Why? Because they're going to eternally perish in hell without Jesus. But that's not the number one motivating factor to take the gospel to the world. The number one motivating factor is our God is worthy of worship. He's the only one that's worthy of worship. And you'll see it all the way through the tenor of Scripture if you read the Bible accurately and And in a disciplined manner, you'll see that God is committed to have worshipers that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so it is. When we see this passage, that's the thing that drives Paul. One commentator says that he is ambidextrous in his evangelism. He throws gospel strikes with both hands, right and left. He preaches to the Jews in the synagogue and he preaches to the pagans in the Agora. Isn't that awesome? He could do whatever God would allow him to do and speak to whoever it was and whatever believer or whatever unbelievers were there. And so we can find so many important lessons about our world view as Christians. And I hope you lock into the sermon and listen carefully. We need to have Christian worldviews as we engage this world. But we can also observe here some evangelistic strategies where Paul uses these strategies in 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 a grand, influential place like Athens, Greece. Uh, That's not beyond the scope and ability for the gospel to penetrate it. 
And we're going to see that in this incredible passage. Remember, Paul had a short stay in Thessalonica. Why? Because he caused a riot. And when the word is preached, that often takes place. A riot ensues, and he's run out of town after three weeks. And we know that now he, visits, he then visits Berea, but those same rascally Jews come down from Thessalonica to Berea 50 miles away, and they can't stand it, so they run him away from Berea. And really, listen, as I read this, think about this. Paul did not go to Athens strategically to preach the gospel. He went there to hide. He, he went there to take refuge. And he gets to go to Greece. Isn't that awesome? And he's there, and he's waiting on Paul. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him there. Remember that plea at the end of last week? Come and join me. And so he's waiting in Athens. But something happens in his spirit. Even though he's derailed in his evangelistic plans, God is still in charge. Remember, we make our plans. God directs our paths. And so the Lord is going to use Paul. Now, are you ready for the text? 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Listen to that. Within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. One translation says, under the sway of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some others said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. That sounds like our civilization, right? Just sit at Starbucks, sip on a latte, and talk about worldviews. 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What a text of scripture. Paul didn't go to Athens again for the purpose of evangelizing. He's not there uh, as part of the plan to take the gospel in that particular area. But wow... He is there in Athens, Greece. And again, this was a famous place. And we get the text of Scripture that he's there and he's kind of navigating out through the... You can just see him walking by and checking out the incredible aesthetics of Athens, Greece. And he's, he's looking around. Uh, remember, uh, as most scholars will tell you, this is the afternoon of the glory of Athens. Corinth had actually taking, taken over in commerce and politics in Greece at this particular time. Athens reached its glory days economically and culturally between 480 and 404 B.C. Politically, think about this. They had developed the first democracy in Athens, Greece. It was the very first place where the elected officials were accountable to the people. That used to be the way it was in the U.S., right? 
it's boasted, uh, it, it boasted incredibly important figures, uh, almost without competition and or equivalence anywhere in the world. Great playwrights, fathers of history like Herodotus and Theodosides, Hippocrates, 5th century Athenian that was the father of Western medicine. Think about this. How can you talk about Athens without thinking about Socrates, the father of philosophy, who taught Plato, who in turn taught Aristotle? All of these philosophers, giants, at one time graced Athens, Greece. Isn't that incredible to think of this? The most celebrated of this era was Phidias, whose statue of Zeus was considered one of the wonders of the world. Phidias also designed the enormous statue of Athena. Temples and artists lined the streets. The most famous building was, of course, the Parthenon. And about 50, 50 feet, uh, a little, about 50 yards away from the Parthenon was a hill about 50 feet high and about 50 yards long. On it was a temple built to a Greek god of war named Eris. Right? And then it corresponded to the Roman god of war named Mars. Hence, you get the Latin term, you've got the Greek term, term Aeropagus, but the Latin term is Mars. Huh. Y'all heard of that, right? Aeropagus, maybe not, but you get the terminology from, you get Mars Hill from that. So Paul will later preach, when I get to that next week, from that particular platform. John Polehill says it was still considered the cultural and intellectual center of the entire Roman Empire, even that day when Paul was there. It's that perspective that Luke wants you to have as you think about this text of Scripture. Talk about being surrounded by competing worldviews. Just think about what a change it was to go from Thessalonica to Berea and now to Athens, Greece. What a change culturally. So here is Paul entering this magnificent city, majestic city, and he's wandering the streets and he's doing what? He's waiting on his companions. And again, this was a center of pagan Greek philosophy. And we get a glimpse of what Paul saw here, what Paul felt and what Paul said. We catch a glimpse of that. John Stott said, We do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. This is because we do not see like Paul. Well, what a testimony to us. What a, an engaging statement that we, we don't feel nor say anything because maybe we don't see what we're supposed to see around us in this world as believers. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. But this city had carved the truest statues, nothing compared. They had painted the divinest pictures. They had wrestled in the greatest games. They had spoken the finest languages. They had sung the greatest songs. They had fought the greatest battles the world has ever known. And this is where Paul, this is where Paul finds himself kind of on a sabbatical. Kind of waiting for his companions. A city of great philosophy, art, and culture. You name it, it was in Athens, Greece. Greece. But you know what? Paul's not impressed with the architectural work. He's not overly impressed with the aesthetics of all the buildings. As he moves through 
The Bible says that in his spirit, Paul is provoked. You know what that word is in the English, right? It's paroxysm. There's an outburst in his heart and in his soul about what he sees as he navigates. He sees the despicable nature of their crude idolatry. Wasn't impressed with the sights as a tourist might be, like you were, right, when you went. Because that's why we go. We would go somewhere like that. Of course, if you know biblical, if you have biblical thinking, of course, you go there and you want to see Mars Hill. You want to see that area where Paul preached the sermon. And you certainly can do that. But he looked at this outrage. And this is a powerful word, folks. And he is, he's outraged at what he sees. He's deeply distressed. He's provoked. The word means to seizure or spasm or have an outburst. You know, the best way to understand this is to think about where the word first came from. And it came from the Hebrew understanding of the Old Testament. What did God tell the Israelites? Well, he gave them two Gave them two huge commandments up front, right? You shall... Well, that's kind of weak. Do you all know the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other... What's number two? You shall make... Yeah, that's right. No graven images. Now think about that for a moment. As he says this to his people, why does God say that? No other gods and no graven images. Why? Because he loved the people. He knew that uh, idolatry was a dead road. Dead end to nowhere. Couldn't offer you anything. Couldn't accomplish anything for you. Only God could do that. So I think Paul, with that terminology, God was jealous for his own glory. He alone deserves to be worshipped. And Paul had this down deep inside of him. This passion within him that God alone is to be worshipped. And that you should know, make no graven image. So there's a mixture of righteous indignation down inside of the Apostle Paul as he sees this. But he also has broken hearted compassion for the people who were worshipping those false gods. Paul had a deep jealousy that the name of God be revered in all the earth. First two commandments given to us. But they were so depraved... That they were given their worship and glory not to the God, our God, but the God of the Bible who alone deserves to be worshipped and praised. But they were giving their honor and respect to a God that did not even exist. It was a false God. So his soul revolted at the idolatry that he saw all around him as he navigated in Athens, Greece. So the Greek actually has the idea... That the city was under the full sway of idolatry. And this is what Paul sees as he's going around. It was under that sway. So Paul at this point does not begin to turn over the statues. He doesn't begin to spray graffiti all over the walls. To whatever inscription is there. Paul starts preaching. And according to this text, he starts dialoguing with them. Paul begins to wage war in the arena of ideas... By engaging it with the arena of the truth of Scripture. Which is exactly what we ought to be doing today. He finds his way to the synagogue first. Was that his custom? You better believe it. Time and time again we see how he goes into the synagogues. And he speaks to the Jews. Why? Because the Jews would have been familiar with the old covenant. And he takes the old covenant. And he points it directly to the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this. But he also goes into the marketplace. And it's actually called the Agora. Remember, 
in ancient civilization, this was the center of not only commerce, but also conversation. People would just hang out there in the Agora. They would hang out in the marketplace. Maybe it's the ancient equivalent to Starbucks. We don't know, but the fact is, they sipped on coffee, they hooked up to Wi-Fi, and they discussed worldviews. They didn't have Wi-Fi, but believe me, they discussed worldviews. Paul is out in the Agora, and he's speaking and dialoguing with whoever would listen to him. Isn't that amazing? He goes from the synagogue. Uh, he, again, he's throwing left-handed, right-handed strikes in both ways, and he was taking the gospel to those who would hear. He was committed to engaging people wherever they were. He did not wait until people came to the church building. No amens? He went to the people and fought against idolatry with the truth of Scripture. John Milton, an old Puritan, said, Let truth and falsehood grapple, for whoever knew truth to be put to worse in a free and open exchange. I say, to God be the glory for that. Because that is the truth. So here is Paul. He's in the marketplace. He's in the center of idol worship. And he's preaching. And he's teaching. And he's dialoguing with people. So Paul's hiding place becomes a platform for the preaching of the truth. So it is when you're led by the Spirit of God. Controlled by the Spirit of God. And you're in touch with the Spirit in such a way that you are obedient. And when God gives you that opportunity, you open your mouth and you speak. And that's what Paul did. Here we have some pagan philosophers that start to show interest in what Paul is saying. Epicureans and Stoics. Remember, the city prided itself with philosophy, right? With ideas. Now, the two people mentioned, Epicureans and Stoics, are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The Epicureans were people who thought that the gods, small g, right, probably did exist... Yet these gods were distant and uninvolved with humanity. That would be called deism. So the gods are not near to us, nor do they care about us if they do exist. So we would say Epicureans are polytheistic deists. They believed in many gods if they did actually exist, but they believed these gods were not imminently involved with people. They were... Uh, removed from us, and rarely ever had contact at all with humanity. To them, there was no fundamental purpose in life. To an Epicurean, there was probably no afterlife. So the goal of life, which motivated their whole view of their philosophical system, was do whatever you can to avoid pain, and at all costs, make sure you pursue pleasure. The highest goal in life for anybody that was an Epicurean would, to be, would be to achieve a life of tranquility, and pleasure. This was the Epicurean philosophy. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that it was the responsibility of everyone to live according to a divine principle or rational principle that they believed bound the entire cosmos together. This spark of divinity, they called the Logos, was immersed in all of nature. So they were pantheist. Not polytheistic, but pantheist. They confused God with world, soul, and thought the world was determined by fate. For them, the wise person recognized his connection to this cosmic thing that held the world together, uh, and it cultivated in an attitude of self-sufficient contentment 
regardless of the circumstances going on around you. Is this good for y'all? You didn't know you was going to have Philosophy 101. You need to listen to this because you're living in a world that believes just like this. And so, the self-sufficiency, the contentment, regardless of circumstances. So, Stoics lived with a stiff upper lip and responded stoically, that's where you get your word, right? And calmly to what went on in the world. To pursue its highest good, the Stoic had to live with reason. Stoics saw history as an unending cycle of order, followed by chaos, followed by order, followed by chaos, and that's a continual cycle. So they would emphasize Epicureans. Let's get, get it together so you understand what Paul is dealing with. Epicureans would emphasize chance, escape, enjoyment of pleasure. And the Stoics uh, would emphasize fatalism, nothing can change, submission, and endurance of pain. In other words, you want to get it in modern vernacular? The Epicureans would believe if it feels good, do it. There are absolutely no consequences. While the Stoic group would say, grin and bear it, because there's nothing you can do about it anyway. Now think about Paul as he stands before these great the intelligentsia of the day. And you've got people who say, if it feels good, do it. Whatever I can do, avoid pain, have pleasure. Sounds like the U.S., right? And then the Stoics. Just keep a stiff upper lip. Just go through it. It's going to be painful. There's no way you can change it. Fatalism. Just try to fit into this pantheistic world because of the world's soul and that God is in and on everything and, and actually they believe that God is everything. Just think about this kind of philosophy to live with. Both worldviews are hopeless and meaningless. So it was these people that Paul was dialoguing with. Did y'all know something, folks? Times don't change and people don't change. Did y'all know that? It's true, and this is what was going on in their day. These people were trying to come up with a world view that made sense out of their lives so that they could get some help with what's going on. They're trying to wrap their minds around this world. The fact of the matter is, whether you're an Epicurean philosopher, or whether you're a Stoic philosopher, or maybe you're just an armchair philosopher, whatever that may be, everybody's trying to come up with a worldview that makes sense out of this life. And then when you look at this life, do you have something that you can see that helps you cope with it? So that you can have this help that you need. Now, Romans 1 tells us that the people who, are, who have these kinds of worldviews are not necessarily looking for truth. Romans 1 says that that's not the case because they take our Creator God and turn Him, in, turn him into an object that they actually make into a creature that they worship. So Romans 1 tells us that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So these worldviews actually serve to suppress the truth of God that can only be given by God. In other words, you've got to have righteousness in order to be right with God. Are y'all listening? So, so a worldview that's different from the Bible is going to be a worldview that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That's going to be the deal. So now, we see that these... Epicureans and Stoics are going to give their opinion of Paul. Did y'all see what they said? Now, they call him a babbler. They call Paul an idle babbler. Now, the fact is, these guys prized a coherent worldview. Where they could say, as a Stoic, this, 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 this. is the way I'm going to view it. 
and a, an Epicurean would say, okay, it's this way, this way, this way, so I can have pleasure in the end. But here, uh, it doesn't suggest that Paul does a poor job in preaching the gospel or dealing with the resurrection in Jesus. What it suggests is they could not wrap their minds around Paul's categories. And that's exactly what happens when you're lost. The natural state of man cannot discern the things of God. The Bible says it clearly. That the natural man, the lost man, cannot discern the things of God. And so categorically speaking, they can't wrap their minds around what the great apostle is preaching. And what they call him is a babbler. Y'all know what that is? It's a seed picker. It is emphasizing uh, a... It actually meant a seed picker or a gutter sparrow. In other words, it was used of various seed-eating or scavenging birds that would run over here and grab a seed away from something and grab another seed over here. So they were saying, Paul's just a babbler. He's got these few ideas and he's gathered them or scavenged them from all over the place and now he's bringing these ideas to us. They accused Paul of picking up an idea here and an idea there. Do you notice something interesting here? The wording of they were pre- that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is interesting. Anastasis is resurrection. But you know, they had a Greek goddess named Anastasis. And when it says Jesus and the resurrection in terminology here, their thought was that the resurrection must have been a female god. That's their categories. Why? Because they put their goddesses with names like Mercy. Right? They would put a topic together with it. So when they hear Paul say Jesus and resurrection, in their mind they're thinking this may be a a feminine counterpart God. That's their understanding of resurrection. You see how this works in the text. In Greek thought, many deities bore names of abstract qualities like mercy or fate or effort or shame. And they assumed that the resurrection was a similar deity. You know... When I think about Paul speaking to the intelligentsia of the day, I think maybe it was because Paul did not wear his glasses on the end of his nose. I mean, in order to be intelligent, right, you're supposed to wear glasses and put them at the end of your nose. And I would try that here because I can't see when I look down. But here's the problem. When I look up, I can't see you if I've got glasses on, right? And maybe that was what was going on and they just thought they were smarter because they had their glasses on the ends of their nose. But here's what they do. Let's take Paul to the center of the intelligentsia. Let's, now, at least they wanted to give him more of a hearing, correct? Why? Because they're always looking for something new. When it came to the Thessalonican people and the Berean people, what did they do when they figured out what Paul was saying? They really wasn't trying to figure it out. They knew exactly what Paul was saying. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what did they do to him? Oh, they ran him out of town, put him on a rail, get on the bus and leave. But that's not the way that the Athenians thought. They thought about new ideas and they wanted to hear what was going on. So they take him to the Areopagus. And you know what that was? It was a guild for philosophers. It was the place where people would stand and lecture and give their ideas. And so these were the university profs who did wear their glasses on the end of their noses. Like your guys at Harvard and Yale. And everywhere else where you've got, uh, oh, young people, I can't tell you how important it is for you to be grounded in your faith before you go off to college. If you're not, you will not make it. Let me just go ahead and tell you. 
If you don't know full well where you stand, you can forget it if you go to a secular university. Because profs are going to stand up there. And it's going to sound all good and rational. But it's going to be demonically driven. And it's going to be contrary to what the word of the Lord says. So, they're up there. And here's what they're going to do in the guild. Let's see if Paul can get enough votes to teach in Athens. They're looking at him to see if he can qualify to be a teacher in Athens with his new ideas that he's given. Or... This guild will censor you and tell you, you just need to be quiet. You're not a teacher. And so we want to know the metaphysical details of what Paul has to say. We want to know all the philosophical nuances of all of this. Is this different than Thessalonica and Berea? You better believe it. He's, he's just stepped into a philosophical world. And instead of being run out of town, town they want, they're immersed in their philosophies and they want to hear what he has to say. And in verse 21... Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's pretty much why they give him a hearing and want to take him to Mars Hill. Because there's something new that they hadn't heard before over here in Athens. And they want to hear exactly what's happening. Folks, this was their hobby. You know, you have your hobbies, right? I sat in the deer stand in the heat yesterday for two and a half hours in the evening. I got bites all over me, but I enjoyed every minute of it, right? It's, my, it's a hobby. And, but their hobby is just to hang out and wait for something new. They didn't need a new idea, ladies and gentlemen. They needed new life. They didn't need another idea. They didn't need another God, small g, S on the end to put on their shelf. They needed the God of eternity who made them and created them. So Paul has moved from the synagogue to the Agora and now the Areopagus, Mars Hill. He's an audience with the intelligentsia of the day in the most legendary city in the history of the world. And here's a preacher preaching the gospel to the intelligentsia of the day. Boy, God doesn't make mistakes, does he? Now, this won't be your typical Old Testament sermon. When we get there in verse 24, he's not going to specifically quote a single Old Testament scripture as he does with the Jews. And instead, the apostle will look for common ground things where he can speak the truth of the gospel. He can't knock them down with both barrels of the Old Testament. He can't do that here. That's his normal way of doing it when he goes into the Jewish synagogue. Double barrel shotgun, Old Testament, boom, boom. And he's able to show the Jews that Christ is a fulfillment. But in this place, Paul is going to make a bridge from their world to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is fascinating. He begins by paying respect and acknowledging that they have religiosity. Now, he's not giving false flattery here. He's not just saying, well, you're religious. Because religious can be interpreted superstitious. And it often is. And more than likely, that's the place here. And he's saying, you know, you're surrounded by idols. And he's not giving... They don't take it as Paul is being uh, critical. All right. I'm sure they didn't take it that he's being derogatory. Or did he see it as an insult? But he wants to make a point of contact with them. And he says to the Athenians, You actually have religion and or superstition. You live in a world that's absolutely full of all kinds of deities. And the next part is often misunderstood. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship. Understand something. 
He's not saying to them that that inscription, unknown God, is my God, and that's the one you're worshiping, but you're doing it falsely. That's not good exegesis. The Greek does not allow that. This is a difficult passage. As a matter of fact, the construction is very hard. He's not saying to them, now let me tell you that unknown God. No, he's saying to them, you are actually worshiping in absolute ignorance. You have no idea who God is at all. Uh, to, To prove that, you've put up another inscription to an unknown God because you don't know who God is. And then when he turns around and says, let me proclaim to you, he's about to tell them of the God who is living and not dead. So that's going to be his point. I see this inscription, altar to the unknown God. Why? It just magnifies the fact that you're so ignorant about who God is. And now let me tell you who the living and true God is. So in other words, the this is what I proclaim to you is what he's about to tell them. Not proclaim the unknown God. Got me? But proclaim the only God who lives. Our God. And he's going to do that. And we're going to see that next week. What an awesome sermon. The God who made the world and everything in it. Don't you think that would get their attention? When he starts off his sermon to an Epicurean and a Stoic. The God who made the world and everything in it. Oh, now that's a new idea for them, of course. So, let me give you a couple of points of application. Are you ready? There's really only one point to the first six or seven verses. And that's this. We must engage our culture with a renewed zeal for the glory of God. Now, this is captured early on with the paroxysm that Paul is happening. What causes him, what motivates him to engage the world that he's living in? And i.e., you're not living in Athens, Greece today. You're living in America. So this is your culture. And how are you going to engage it? Well, we need a renewed zeal for the glory of Jesus. You know, here's the deal. Number one, we must look at our culture from a Christian worldview. That's how we engage our world with a renewed zeal for the glory of God. We have to start with seeing our world from a Christian worldview. What struck Paul about this city? Now, I know he admired the things that he looked at. He probably would have gone to the Grand Canyon if he came to the States, right? I'm sure he was captivated. He probably wouldn't go to New York and see the towers or whatever they built there. He probably wouldn't go all over the place and see the memorial, Lincoln Memorial. He probably wouldn't go to these places. But yet, Paul looked at the city from a Christian worldview. What is a worldview? It's a set of beliefs that are fundamental issues of life in this, in this arrangement. Origin, where did we come from? Meaning, what's the purpose? And destiny, where are we going to go or is there any afterlife at all? Look, folks, everybody in this world works from some kind of worldview. They have an understanding of origin, meaning, and destiny. One's worldview allows one to look at answers to questions about those subjects from the grand narratives of the Bible. That would be me and you if you're a Christian. We see the story of our world unfolding through the lenses of thus saith the Lord. That's our Christian worldview. And when a person truly becomes a Christian, the way that individual sees everything changes. When you're lost and all of a sudden God removes the scales and the calluses from your heart and you trust Jesus Christ only, you begin to realize that embedded within the story line of the world is the Word of God. And it's set in theological categories because of the way that we believe in our God, right? But so often in our world today, there's this pursuit of uh, pleasure. Uh, and the list goes on. We don't see, we're not bringing the, the Christian worldview into our hearts to be able to look at the world and say, now, 
let's get the category straight. How does God view the world? How do we view the world? You know, when someone says it doesn't matter who you worship, you go ahead and mark her down, that's a heretic. When somebody says you can worship anybody you want to worship, let's just all come together, that person is a heretic. Why are we taking the gospel to Muslims and Islamic faith? Because they do not worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because we hate Muslims. That can never be the case. And it better not be the case. Uh, we, we despise their religion because it's idolatry. And it doesn't mesh with the Word of God. Right? Why do we hate or despise universalism or pluralism? Because people believe that universally everybody's going to heaven or pluralism doesn't matter what road you're on. As long as you get on the road, you'll make it to God. Folks, Jesus didn't come down from heaven to die for us because people can go to heaven different ways. He came down from heaven because He's absolutely the only way. Now, I'm encouraging you, young people and adults, we need to start looking at our world from a Christian world view. We need to have it in our heart and life and see things. When we navigate in this world, think about the idolatry that's around you and engage that idolatry with the truth of the Word of God. And you know what that's going to mean? It's going to mean that we have to get rid of some idols in our own lives. That's what it's going to mean. Because in the United States of America, among Christians, it's rarely anything ever carved out of stone. But it is the pursuit of pleasure. And even education sometimes can end up being your God. Or your career that you're going to have in life. So... We need to lovingly point out our own idolatry in our own hearts and then lovingly point it out into a world that's steeped in idolatry. Here's the second thing. We belong to Jesus. And we are deeply affected with the zeal for God's name. When we belong to Christ, we're going to be deeply affected. Not only are we going to look at the world through a Christian worldview, but we're going to be affected by what we see. A-F-F. Affected. Inside. And actually infected. Right? By the glory of Jesus. What was it that motivated Paul to speak? It was a zeal for God's name. God is not being worshipped. And he's not being glorified. We began this sermon by quoting John Stott. And here's something additional he says in that context. Why is it that we are so deaf and dumb to Christ's commission? What is the commission? Go into all the world and make disciples. Why is it that we're so tongue-tied when it comes to giving out our testimony? We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. We have never felt the paroxysm of indignation that Paul felt. We've not sensed the divine jealousy stirring up within us. So Paul saw it, felt it, and spoke it. And that's what we need to do. We need to engage our world with a zeal for God's name. We need to be affected by that. In other words, when people don't worship God, it ought to affect us. We can't have the attitude that, oh, just Islam, you just go ahead and worship who you want to worship. You can't let their wrong be right for them. You can't, folks. Why? Because we worship the one true God and the only God. And we don't want anybody not to worship. We want everybody to worship Him, the Lord God. So Paul spoke, deeply pained by what he saw in Athens in reference to idolatry. Have we ever been provoked? By the idolatry that we see in our contemporary world. As we live life and as we look around with our Christian worldview, do our hearts burn within us with a jealousy for the name of Jesus, for the name of Christ? This should be 
Not the only, but the primary motivating factor of why we want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right? Missions exist because worship does not. Our number one passion should be that we're willing to take the gospel to the ends of the world. These beliefs that we have should motivate us. It it ought to be more than just, oh, I come to church on Sunday morning and I hear a few things and I go back home. No, it it ought to affect your worldview and ought to move you to action. It ought to take you out into the marketplace. It ought to affect the way that you work, the cubicle beside you in your office. You can't help it if you've been affected by the gospel and you have a desire for the glory of the name of God and that zeal ought to motivate you. You can't help it. You have to open your mouth and you have to speak. Do you know that this is what motivated all the early missionaries? Your Carries and your Brainerds. They were all motivated, not because people were dying without Jesus. That's good motivation. But the number one reason is that God deserves to be worshipped. And He's going to be worshipped by all the nations of the world. Y'all read the Bible? God's going to do this. He's got the goods to get it done. We just need to be a part of what God is doing. Yes, we are to have compassion for perishing sinners. But the ultimately... We desire to see God's name hallowed among our neighbors and the nation that we live in and the nations of the world. Do you ever lack a holy sense of righteous indignation? As you look around at this world, I'm guilty. Starts here, we just kind of go through life, mundane affairs, never think about the fact that you've got idolatry all around you and you've got people who are not worshiping the Lord. When Paul saw that idolatry, he was incensed in his spirit. Again, Do we want our children to come to Christ? You better believe it. Why? Because they're going to perish without Jesus. But there's a bigger reason. We don't want our kids to be blasphemers. We want our kids to worship the one true God. Right? That's the motivating thing. We want our kids to worship the one true God because there are no other gods. God is too glorious to abide with that. And that's why he said so forward up front, no other gods besides me. No other gods. May we all be infected with a zeal for the name of God and the glory of Christ that makes us see, feel, and speak. Let's let our faith into the marketplace, into the ordinary flow of life, whether it be going to school. You know, it takes a lot of courage to speak today at school, doesn't it, kids? They're going to think I'm a Jesus freak. You know what that is? It's usually somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Right? So let them go ahead and call you a Jesus freak. I mean, it's so hard to have someone walk into school at Ozark with 2,000 students as a student and to speak truth to a world of idolatry. Be the man and woman that does it. Right? Did I wake you up, girl? Yeah. (laughs) Be the single girl or the single guy that will be willing to speak truth into a culture of complete idolatry. Do it. I guarantee you when you stand before Jesus, you'll be glad that you did. May we all be infected with a zeal for the name of God and the glory of Christ that makes us feel, makes us see, makes us feel, and makes us say something of the truth of the Word of God. God, with heads bowed and eyes closed, Lord, I just think about meditating on Your Word like we meditated on Psalm 24. Selah. What do you think of this? Lord, you've given us your word this morning and we should stop and think about it. God, how can we, Lord, engage our culture?
Father, we need to have a Christian worldview. We need to think about our origin, the meaning of life, the afterlife. And the only source of meaning for life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your word says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the, ple- all the treasures of wisdom or no- and knowledge are hidden in the Son of God. God, we realize that as your people. We need loving compassion for those around us that are lost. And we, le- we need righteous, holy indignation because God is not being worshipped and honored. The first part of the model prayer is, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Paul looked at Athens and he knew that the name of Jesus was not being hallowed. And it broke his heart. It upset him. It distressed him that God was not being glorified. God, let that be a motivating factor in all of us. That the zeal for your name is paramount in all of our hearts because we love and serve you. And we want others to love and serve you. Because you're the God who deserves to be worshipped. You are God alone. Lord, help us this morning. If there's someone lost, I pray that they would come to the end of their skepticism or their Epicurean philosophy of life or their Stoic philosophy, and they would come to know the God of the Bible, the God that controls the world, the God that created them, the God that sent forth His Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the Christian worldview. God, would you help us today? Lord, for... Believers, God, give us boldness to speak wherever we are, to whoever we meet. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.